Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, that is JB3. And we are continuing our conversation a bit from what we heard from Desiree Powell as it relates to space and place and getting a little bit deeper into what happens when spaces are designed in a way that promote environmental inequality. And what I mean by that is that there are certain areas and communities that are more likely to have things in them that will promote negative health outcomes. And so you think about where your waste exists or you think about where there are certain factories, more than likely they're in urban areas. And so being a um, born and bred Detroiter, this is something that I can relate to directly. So you, you think about the spaces where there aren't Uh, parks. There aren't green spaces. And all of these things play a role in one's ability to be healthy. So we've described that time and time again. But what we're going to do this time around is we're going to get really specific with the lenses that are necessary to unpack this problem. And so today we're going to hear from Dr. Lacey Satcher, who is um, a scholar, an activist, a feminist, a radicalist, all of the things necessary to really start um, disrupting these patterns of inequality. And so I'm excited because the lenses that Dr. Satcher brings to this work are necessary and they're they're not the most common. So really, Dr. Satcher would just love to welcome you to the show and let the listeners learn a little bit about you. Hello. Hello, Dr. Bell. Um, My name is Dr. Lacey Satcher. I am a graduate of Vanderbilt University Department of Sociology, just graduated not too long ago. And in the fall, I will be an assistant professor in the um, Department of Sociology and the Environmental Studies program at Boston College. And I'm, uh, I love research. I love teaching. Um, I love talking about issues like environmental justice. So I'm really excited about chatting with um, Dr. Bell today. So Dr. Satcher, tell us a little bit about what brought you to environmental justice work in the in the first place. Oh, great question. So um, when I started graduate school, I had a whole other idea of what I wanted to do and what kind of research that I wanted to do. I wanted to look at um, these social psychological processes involved in uh, trauma, especially for domestic violence and rape victims. And I had this whole idea of what I wanted to do, um, which is of course still a really great topic. Um, But when I started graduate school at Vanderbilt, I actually met up with a professor um, who worked in the department who was studying environmental justice and, 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 and more specifically, bus barns and how the location of bus depots or uh, bus barns in New York were really correlated with asthma rates. Um, and so that just really blew my mind. Um, the, just thinking about the ways that racism um, and the uh, demographics of certain neighborhoods, certain cities, certain states, certain countries, um, how those things can uh, be closely related to injustices that we don't always consider injustice, like where people live and how far or close people live to things that aren't good for our health. Um, and so after talking with him and doing a paper on uh, bus barns in uh, New York City, I just got more and more interested in this area. Um, of work on inequality. And so it just kind of uh, snowballed from there. 
it's amazing how one conversation can just shift everything, right? Absolutely. It's it that's it's it really is amazing because I had no when I thought about like environmentalism and envi- environment, I thought um hippie, uh, you know, peace, <laughs> crunchy, granola, and nothing's wrong with any of that, but that really wasn't a thing that I thought spoke to me. Um and in general, environmental studies and environmental social is still very much white and like marked as something that white people study, right? And so being a black person wanting to study the environment and in particular, how um, injustice can affect how the interaction of people in environment can be really like racialized and uh, can kind of perpetuate inequality. It really, it really spoke to me. So I'm happy to be one of now a growing group of folks um, studying, um, the environment and environmental justice. You know, working in state government, I, um, you know, you get pulled onto task forces and commissions Mm -hmm. at the time. And when I got asked to participate in our states, like EJ work, I'm Mm -hmm. like, I know nothing about environmental (laughs) justice. I don't know why you need me here. Don't know what I'm going to contribute, but it was, it was divine. I would say that like my work around health equity and mm. what I understood as far as like institutional racism and some of the consequences mm-hmm. and then be able to layer that with some of the environmental inequities. I'm like, oh, I should have been talking about this the entire time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't realize how much that's connected. All the other issues in terms of inequality and civil rights and justice work, social justice work, how much the environment plays a role in it and how that's just an added layer of the types of like structural racism um, and like interpersonal racism that we we've that we've grown used to studying or used to at least seeing or hearing about Mm -hmm. definitely connected so let's dig a little bit more into the work that that you've done and that you're doing currently could you describe this multiply deserted areas to us and what does that term mean so yes, yeah, so the term uh, multiply deserted areas, uh, it's my brain baby. Um, some days it's like, a, it's like a toddler. Some days I love it and they're behaving and the term just seems like so brilliant. And other days I'm like, uh, I don't know if I like this term anymore. So it's, there's, a, there's a love and like a love a little less relationship. I won't say <laughs> but like with with that idea and that term um so multiple deserted areas is a term and a concept that uh really explains how neighborhoods usually uh poor neighborhoods and usually neighborhoods with um a lot more racial uh variety um especially when it comes to black and uh latinx um people it's it, it talks about how these neighborhoods they're not just dealing with well the residents in these neighborhoods aren't just dealing with one issue right it's not like oh well I live in a food desert and I'm having issues getting um having access to healthy foods and, and groceries right usually if the neighborhood doesn't have a supermarket because of the way that uh and how I explained it, how capitalism works, right? You don't just not have a grocery store. You also probably don't have a decent park 
um, in your neighborhood. And you probably also don't have a pharmacy or some other uh, type of store or resource that's really important and necessary. And so multiply deserted area talks about that. It's, it's a play, it draws from things like cumulative disadvantage um, and some of the other uh, really great work that talks about how um, people and places can be uh, multiply disadvantaged it speaks to that. And so a multiply deserted area, it's just a neighborhood or community where there's a resource scarcity of multiple types. And my, um, and I posit that being in a neighborhood that's multiply deserted has an even greater impact on your health and well-being than being in a neighborhood that maybe is just a food desert or just a pharmacy desert or, you know, just maybe doesn't have a park. And so there's this uh, multiplicative uh, effect on health and well-being. Just thinking about the ways that these things, our systems interact, right? So what you're saying is the, the negative impact of having these multiple deserted um, systems or experiencing these deficiencies within these systems compound in the impact to our health. Mm -hmm. hmm. Makes sense, right? Right, <laughs> right. I got I to gotta follow up for that later. Um, so let's talk a little bit more at kind of the, the individual level. And so how do social identities really structure our relations with place in that way? And so it's my idea that um, I, I draw heavily from really social psychological theories like stress theory. Um, and so stress theory talks about how our, our identities, right, our social statuses that are really built from our social identities. So things like our race, our gender, um, our uh, sex, nationality, uh, things like that, how those identities have certain status um, in the U.S. and globally, right? Maybe the status changes depending on the uh, national context, right? But in general, right, our social identities have certain status. If you're white, you're afforded that, having that white identity affords you certain status. That is different from um, being black and having that social identity or being uh, transgender or being um, a male or female or um, you know, being um, uh, foreign born or being a native to the US, right? All of these things have certain status. And stress theory states that those status, those differences in status mean that there are differences in exposure to stressors, right? Based on those differences in status, right? So not only is, you know, being black meaning having different exposure to uh, certain stressors that you wouldn't necessarily if you were white, but also it means you have different resources to deal with stressors, right? And so um, those differences in stressors and in the resources to deal with stressors lead to differences in health. When I expand this to talk about neighborhoods, that same idea around identity and how identities have certain statuses uh, that lead to different exposures and different um, health outcomes, it extends to that, right? So black neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are marked black, whether it's based on actual numbers, like the demographics of the neighborhood, uh, say that it's, you know, over half uh, black population or whether it just looks black. And I'm putting, you can't see me, but I'm putting air quotes, right? Looks black, 
you see just enough or, or too many black people and now that neighborhood is marked as black or you see something that's you know stereotypically a black thing maybe a black type of shop maybe a certain type of store or a certain type of this or that right because of that based on that social identity according to what I think um, that neighborhood has a certain amount of worth right status right and so a low status neighborhood uh, would be a black neighborhood and black neighborhoods are afforded less resources than white neighborhoods not only are they afforded less resources but um, you can kind of flip that they're also the target for the bad stuff when we want to um, site a waste incinerator or a landfill or you know some sort of chemical factory we're not going to put it in a high status neighborhood we're going to put it in a low status neighborhood and so yeah that's how that's how I connect something at the individual level like uh, our social identities to these bigger uh, structural processes and so um, I can get a whole lot more social psychological um, and I do in my dissertation but um, I guess I'll stop there no problem no problem let's talk about the health experiences and health outcomes that are matched with these environmental injustices and these social identities. And the thing that I definitely want to drive home and folks have heard it on the podcast before, you know, being black is, is not a risk factor in, in no shape right. or form. It's, it's always racism and racist systems that drive right. these health inequities. But could you talk about how those things interact with environment? Absolutely, absolutely. So even, you know, and that's, and you can, you know, of course, if you are a health scholar, you, you know that, um, racism um, situates black Americans in particular in very like precarious health situations. And so uh, whether it's, you know, discrimination and the stress of discrimination, either in a personal or on a more systemic level, uh, whether that, you know, leads to differences in health outcomes and, and mental health outcomes, or it's, you know, some of the other um, issues uh, involving racism, like, racism predisposes black Americans to, to worse health. And so even if I didn't look at environment, that the evidence of that is abundant. Um, and so in my research, I'm just looking at another route through which racism shapes health. And so I look at the fact that, as I said, the reason why black neighborhoods don't have access to certain resources that are important for health, like grocery stores with healthy foods, in parks where you can exercise and pharmacies where you can get your medicine is because of institutional um, and structural racism, right? And so in my research, I found that not having access to those things, so living in an MDA means that you have uh, worse health in a lot of ways. I found higher rates of asthma in MDAs, um, higher rates of physical inactivity, let's see, um, higher rates of diabetes, and higher rates of obesity. And that's without um, looking directly at race. So not even controlling for whether the neighborhood is predominantly black or not. Now, when I do control for whether the neighborhood is predominantly black or not, that effect gets worse, <laughs> right? And so, you know, if you live in an MDA, health is not as good as if you didn't live in MDA, just in general. But if you live in an MDA and that MDA is also predominantly black, health is a lot worse. 
than you know if you live in an MDA and it's a wider neighborhood. And so there is an added effect of not only MDAs as a uh, manifestation of racism, but also just racism in general, right? Just the neighborhood being predominantly black and those individuals dealing with all the other manifestations of racism that maybe don't have to do anything with their environment. Maybe it's work stress or, or you know, all of these other things that are uh, all the other ways that racism, you know, kind of raises its ugly head. Um, it's, it all, um, I guess, uh, comes to a head, right? And so that the effect is even worse. And so, yeah, I've found um, the, that relationship in terms of MDAs and health to, to affect uh, obesity, asthma, um, diabetes, and physical inactivity, and also poor mental health. Um, I'm still working, I'm still running those numbers, but preliminary uh, data and analysis does show an effect on uh, poor mental health. So um, neighborhoods that are MDAs have uh, worse mental health in terms of, not neighborhoods, the people who live in neighborhoods that are MDAs report worse mental health than those that do not. You know, it's interesting us, uh... Black scholars, we all find ourselves saying kind of the, not the same, but it's the same themed things over a period of time. Before Equity Matters started, mm -hmm. I, I did this um, presentation around COVID-19 and Black lives, and people didn't quite understand structural racism. In mm. the way that I would describe it, and the reason why I bring it up, as you mentioned, is everything comes to a head, is I, I described it as where all the roads meet, like all the racist roads <laughs> come together here and mm -hmm. everything is worse here mm -hmm. and it's terrible that our systems whether it's transportation whether it's food retail right. care public health all of them have their own set of inequities that add up to mm -hmm. the structural inequity that you know you, it's even difficult to put a a quantity to right right so i'm a sucker for root causes and I would love to, to pick your brain around what exactly causes environmental racism? What exactly causes environmental racism? I think, um, I think, of course, that interplay between um, white supremacy and capitalism um, or uh, white supremacy, uh, racism and capitalism, I think, you know, they work together. And um, there's really great work by Cedric Robinson on racial capitalism, right? And this idea that racism can work independently because we've seen it in other countries that aren't capitalistic countries, right? But capitalism, capitalism goes hand in hand with racism, right? And so in that way, they work together to capitalism, racism do, to uh, disadvantage and exploit the people who don't have value. And if we're talking about deriving economic and social value from a racial identity, we know who don't have value in that sense, right? And so what that means is racial capitalism, um, when it happens or, or as it occurs, it means that at the individual level, Black lives don't matter, right? And we see that in uh, all of our institutions, right? 
um, in healthcare and in law and in, in, in you know, in, in all of those and in education, right? But we also see it in the environment, um, the built environment in particular, well, the built environment in particular, right? The things that humans have control over, right? Not so much the natural environment, but the built environment, oh yeah. And so we see, again, areas with black people or, or other people of color, um, that's where the, the, the factories are. That's where the landfills are and the waste incinerators. You know, examples like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, right? Um, um, the long history of environmental injustice uh, for Native Americans since the inception of what is like the United States of America, right? You know, centuries of, of that. The idea that, oh, this is Native American land. Well, they don't have a value. Like, who cares that that land is valuable, but not their life. So let's, you know, let's have these um, landfills. Let's put a pipeline here. Let's, you know, do all of these things that are dangerous to those individuals because they don't matter, right? Um, in terms of economic value, right? Um, and so that that to me, that is the root cause. It's just in another way. Um, instead of talking about hazards, um, like toxic hazards, like of course the waste incinerators or the landfills or you know the nuclear you know sites. I'm talking about access to important resources, right? Things that people need, like grocery stores and pharmacies and parks that are are important, especially grocery stores, right? For daily life and for some people, pharmacies, right? Folks who depend on certain medications um, on a on a um, like a normal a weekly basis, right? People who need their insulin, who need to fill a, a, a monthly or a bi-weekly prescription, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, so I'd say racism and capitalism, white supremacy are, are the root cause of environmental racism. I mean, it's the same old racism we've, we've grown to, to, well, not, I was going to say grown to love, but uh, are very <laughs> familiar with. It's just another face of it, a mm -hmm. face of it. And it's, it's interesting that you you posit it that way. Um, it's, it's not surprising. I think it's revealing in the sense that, again, we see the same ugly faces of white supremacy showing up at multiple levels, right? So it's, it's not just structural. It's not just institutional. It's not just individual. It's not just interpersonal. It's, it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. And the decisions that are made that are rooted in white supremacy, again, we see produce inequities across a variety of spectrums. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so it's like, I remember um, in grad school, I was that person, me and a few other folks were, they were always asking the, the race question, the racism question, really. It was the race question, but behind that, is really the racism question. And people wondering like, why you, like, why does that have to be, like, why accept the question? Is it? Oh, is yeah. That, and it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is everything, anything that you can throw out as, soci as sociologists, maybe not if we're in a biology or chemistry class, maybe not, maybe, maybe it can't be about race. But if we're in a sociology class and we're talking about things happening in society and social processes, racism is there. Like, I'm sorry it's there. And so I'm going to always be the one to talk about, to ask that question, because it's the root. It's the foundation upon which this country and most of the world, a lot of the Western world was built. So it's always relevant. 
I was that student too. It's like, <laughs> before we move on, can we, can we circle back and just talk about racism really quick? Right. We're so ready to move on. I was like, mm, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't sit with this. Right. <laughs> exactly. Now, what role do you play in, in addressing this problem? I know you definitely bring the, the research side of things, but are there any other roles that you take on? Oh, absolutely. I am, well, I have been trying. It's really hard. And, you know, I think the pandemic has kind of put a damper on this because I think that's when I was really kind of able to come up for air for my dissertation um, and, and kind of see, like, do the other work, right? So it's the research work that's really important to me, but also I don't want to be a researcher who just describes the problem, right? Even though there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because we need to know what the problem is, right? And folks like policymakers need need the numbers. They need the data. They want the data because they don't, you know, people's testimonies are very powerful and very important, but policymakers aren't, they aren't moved by that, right? They're moved by data and they're moved by numbers. So that's important. I don't want to discredit that. But I also wanted to do work on the back end. Like I've described the problem. Now, what can I do to help? besides inform policy. And so I have been trying really hard to uh, reach out to organizations um, in my hometown um, in Jackson, Mississippi, um, uh, which was one of the cities included in my sample for my dissertation. Um, and for the qualitative part of my dissertation where I actually interviewed people um, in multiple desert areas, it was also included there. There were people from that area of Mississippi. So I've been trying to reach out to um, organizations. Haven't really had any success yet, but I'm hopeful. Um, I've made some connections with uh, Save the Trees Boston, which works and it's, it's, I'm pretty sure, um, uh, based out of Roxbury, um, which is an historically Black and Latinx um, neighborhood or city. It, I don't know if it's a neighborhood, but okay, I just want to add Boston is in terms of like, it's makeup, it's really confusing. I don't know if Roxbury is a separate city or neighborhood, but it's rooted in Roxbury, which is a, which I think is a part of Boston. I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I'm looking forward to working with them. And I think the work that Save the Trees Boston does is um, trying to keep as many trees in, in Roxbury um, as possible because Roxbury is undergoing some gentrification. And along with that is a lot of the green space um, that and the trees that have been there um, in Boston for a while. And trees are really important just in general, right? Because they provide that stuff that we breathe in, that oxygen, but also in a city like Boston, which is uh, what they call like an urban heat island. So little known fact, well, maybe not little known, um, urban cities or places with a lot of asphalt and concrete are much hotter than areas like more rural or suburban areas with a lot less concrete and asphalt, right? And so, you know, it's an injustice because we know in general who lives in those urban spaces, right? It's usually folks with lower um, SES and uh, people of color, right? And so Save the Trees Boston is working to keep the trees, literally save the trees in, in Roxbury. And so I am looking forward to working with them. Um, I've reached out, I've had some conversations, so I'm excited about that. But I, I feel, still feel like I need to be doing more, um, especially now again, that I can kind of breathe from dissertating and defending and 
all of that. But uh, it's my hope to to keep doing this research, but also to get on the other end and you know do some more scholar activism, um, heavy on the activism part uh, in the future. I've got three quick follow-ups. So one, I've got some friends in Boston that I want to make sure that you connect with. Uh, I'm not sure how much longer he's going to be there, but he can definitely help get you grounded with some of the community and some of the work that they're doing. Yay. Two, shout out to people who are doing the work and not just researching. Like you said, it is important, but right. being able to tie the research to policy is key because as much right. as policymakers like to rag on researchers and all of that, I've learned over the past few years, they don't get it as much as they think they do. Mm. We did enough to be uh, decision makers and make poor decisions sometimes, but mm -hmm. being able to articulate the needs of community to people in power, we need right. more voices doing that. Absolutely. And the third thing, I don't think I knew you were from Mississippi. That's where my family is <laughs> from. So that's cool. Um, cool. From Vicksburg and Carthage and... <laughs> another small town that my grandma said wasn't even on a map and that is Oklahoma. I ain't never heard of Oklahoma, but I heard of Vicksburg and um, Carthage. Vicksburg is right down the road because I'm from Jackson. So Vicksburg is like 30 minutes, I think. 30 mm -hmm. minutes or less. Um, so wow, yay. That's cool. Yeah, I'm from, so yeah, I'm from Mississippi originally and then I just, you know, moved to Nashville for school and I guess I'm going farther north <laughs> to Boston. Right. When you get to the uh the northeast well we'll have to check in again because yeah um now part of the reason why I, I really wanted you on the podcast was to talk about your approach to the work and you call mm -hmm. out a crucial black feminist approach what does that mean how does it form your analysis how does it form your solutions what does it bring to bear mm, great question i think first and foremost coming from that perspective. So that crucial black feminist approach, that that is my approach to research, but that's also my approach to life, right? I'm a black woman who who is a feminist who who just in everyday life I use the without trying, you know, without forcing it, like use that lens as in, when I approach everything in life. Um, so when it comes to research, I think first and foremost, it has to do with understanding my positionality, right? I feel like that is so important as a researcher. Um, and the, the idea of like understanding where you are and where you're from and how, where you are, where you're from, what your identities are, how they shape, how, what, what you view as a social, problem or issue that needs to be studied. It shapes how you view that social problem. It shapes how you approach it, what methods you use. Um, when you collect the data, it shapes what the data means to you, like how you interpret that data and how you, you know, describe and, you know, report your results and the implications of your work. And so that first and foremost, I think is like a crux of like having a critical uh, black feminist perspective, recognizing that I'm not this like, you know, researcher in a bubble that um, has, is unbiased and has no effect on the population that I'm studying. And, you know, there aren't any consequences of, you know, this research that I'm doing. There are consequences and I need to 
those consequences and the implications of me being the researcher need to be considered um, during the entire research process from beginning to end. Um, and I think we don't see enough of that um, in research, like the, like the idea around positionality and being reflexive on how am I affecting this data? Like the data isn't just the data, right? There, yeah, it's raw data, but mm, mm, <laughs> it isn't just the data. Like we are human beings who have biases and it shapes everything. Um, but you only see positionality or the idea around positionality, you only see that in qualitative work, like when you're interviewing someone or, or, or doing uh, focus groups, when really there needs to be a kind of moment to reflect on your position for quantitative data, for sure. And, you know, I feel like quantitative work gets away with just being quote unquote, uh, more objective and, you know, no need for talking about um, positionality and how, uh, you know, you as a researcher can, you know, have an impact on the data. Like there's no discussion of that at all in quantitative work and it should be. And so I think first and foremost, that is that kind of is at the forefront of my position as like a black fem feminist and um, like doing research, right? So recognizing that I, this, this work is important, but also I, I'm not doing this in a bubble and anything that I do and report and collect any of that data, it affects the population. And I need to be aware of that and constantly like checking myself on like, what am I doing? Is this what I want to do? Is this, is this hurting? You know what I'm saying? How can this data be uh, that I'm collecting maybe innocently? How is this data? How can this data be misconstrued? Like all of these things, am I doing harm? All of that, right? Um, I think that is the basis of, of you know, my approach as a, as a Black feminist um, to research for sure. I was just going to say, it must be divine, right? That I'm currently working on, uh, I'm planning to launch in the fall, not sure when this episode, when this episode will be out before then, launch in the fall, a, a webinar series for Equity Matters. And the first one is around positionality. And mm. we tend to focus on positionality primarily around research, but there's this huge gap when it comes to positionality, privilege and power when it comes to practice. Mm. And so thinking about practitioners who are out there and the different social identities that they bring and how that shapes their approach, how that shapes their interactions. And so the fact that you even brought that up out the blue and we, we didn't even like have that on the outline, mm. totally reassuring for the work that's coming in the fall. Oh, wow. And that's exciting. I look forward. I look forward to those webinars. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely something that should be discussed and kind of brought up. Because it's important, you're right, not just for research, for, for everyone, any, anyone having any interaction with human beings should be aware of their positionality and how those differences in power uh, and privilege um, can, can, can have major effects, right, and implications. So yeah, absolutely. You mentioned being a scholar activist. How do we move beyond highlighting the disparities to actually redistributing power oh man the good stuff right 
the good stuff, right? Redistributing power. Um, it's it's that's 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 one that's really it's definitely something that's going to be like not going to be easy, right? Because even as scholars, you know, PhDs or you know doctors, right? We um, I feel like sometimes we go into graduate school wanting to save the world, right? And as time goes by, we become doctors. And then, you know, we finally, we're finally able to afford food and, you know, a pretty good car and maybe even, you know, a little condo, a little house. And then we forget all of the things. Are you right? All of the things that we wanted to do in terms of the activism part, right? And so I'm at that, like, space, liminal space of finishing graduate school, not yet a professor, like I ain't got my first check yet, so I'm still broke, you know, I w w well, I'm still broke, not as, you know, <laughs> broke from a place, like a privileged broke, let me be real, um, um, and so I'm trying to avoid forgetting, right, and so that, wor the work to kind of, as you said, uh, like reallocate the power and, you know, really get the solution is of course going to take policy uh like revolutionary policy like not just a few little this and that a little a few little incentives here and there even though incentivizing developers um to build uh in neighborhoods is important but then you know it can backfire because you know justification and you know then then residents of those multiple deserted areas get displaced right and so it's gonna take some like revolutionary policy, thoughtful policy, policy that community members actually have a hand in and a say in. I think, yeah, that's the number one like key. That's the source. So I don't have the answers because I don't live in a multi deserted area, right? I don't live, you know, I study these neighborhoods, but this these aren't my neighborhoods. It was my neighborhood. One of the neighborhoods was actually my neighborhood, but not anymore. Right. So I think talking to community members and asking them for their thoughts and their ideas. Right. Um, and kind of letting community members and stakeholders like take the lead on the change, um, I think is important. Right. Because we can all like us as scholars, we can think we know we got the answers. But, you know, uh, you know, we may have a little bit of the answers, but we don't we don't we don't have all the answers. Right. Um, it actually reminds me of one of my respondents. I so I did, I did this, you know, macro uh, studies, right? You know, looking at you know all these thousands of neighborhoods. But I also did um, a smaller study, um, and I interviewed residents in and uh, in a multiple deserted area um, in my hometown. And one of the things that stood out to me from the residents when we start talking about resources and access and grocery stores and what you need in your neighborhood and what's not there and, you know, all of this, they said, um, a resident said, they don't ask us, right? They, they don't give us what we need. They don't give us what we need. They give us what they think we need. No one asks us what we want. And that's the problem, right? And so here I am talking about multiple deserted areas and, you know, grocery stores, pharmacies and parks and why they're so necessary. And you know the data reflects that, some and some of the stuff that um, the residents also reflects that. 
but some of the some of the residents say other things like there are other things that take precedent over a new grocery store or a park or a pharmacy right they want community centers right they places for their kids to play outside of the hot you know Mississippi sun you know and so there are other issues right they want the streets fixed they don't want to have to ride down their street and like you know tear their car up right because there's so many potholes they want you know the abandoned houses to be torn down or done you know renovated or rehabbed or something so I think the key to reallocating the power um you know and the resources is giving that power of like knowing what the neighborhood needs to the people who actually live in the neighborhood it's amazing how often that comes off as a novel approach and it, it blows <laughs> my mind it's like folks are like we should engage the communities like yeah, we should have been done that, y'all. Like, right. how are we making decisions and we haven't talked to anybody? Right. And then when they give us answers, we have two choices. And unfortunately, it feels like we never do them. One, mm. we actually listen mm. and do the things they need. Or two, we invite the people who can make those decisions happen. And so mm. I think about the role of different um, governmental entities. Sure. I may be attached to the state health department and there might be a very significant transportation gap, but I can be a convener, right? That, that's how I redistribute my power and my access, the privileges that I have by saying, mm -hmm. hey, I need to pull the department of transportation here because we got a serious gap that's impacting lives in this area. Like they don't have access to a bus route to get to their fairly qualified health center. Mm -hmm. Wow. Who would have thought that the state health department would have been responsible for that? Ding, ding, ding. They did, but we didn't ask them. <laughs> so right. I would love for people to, to engage up front, engage mm -hmm. throughout, and engage after. Absolutely. I like that. You should, you should just trademark that. Engage up front, throughout, and after. <laughs> for sure. Put a trademark on it. <laughs> so the last question I have, and just as kind of putting a, a timestamp on things, is there any way that we can use the attention that's been brought to disparities as a result of COVID-19 to addressing disparities and inequities in the environment? And part of this question stems from, um, I was recently on a, was it a round table where we were talking about health equity and environmental justice and COVID-19 came up naturally. And we realized that they're the same communities. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do now that we know this? I think it's important to, to yeah, recognize, recognize that connection. And it, again, it, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier about how racism comes to head, like all of these ways where like when you peel away the layers and the, you know, the concepts and the, you know, turns, it's, racism it's white supremacy right um and so the connection i think is kind of evident um especially when we're talking about grocery stores right that was you know i don't know about anyone else but that was my number one spot throughout the pandemic that was really the only place you know most folks go grocery store to work of course you know for those for those who um had to work um and the gas station those so for people who don't have access to a grocery store right or whose grocery store was was you know 
crappy before the pandemic and it's even more crappy now right um or or who you know whose grocery store had really long lines pre-pandemic now has even more long lines post-pandemic right or just you know those issues were that people had regarding access were just uh it was like they it was like they multiplied like they got they were exacerbated and so i think i think it's connected i think it took a pandemic for people to realize that those things were connected. Like, oh, everyone, in, even outside of like going to grocery store, everyone doesn't have, oh, people don't have Instacart. Oh, everyone doesn't have, you know, you know, all of this, um, what did I call it? Uh, this extra income to, 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 to buy workout equipment, to work it at home now that, you know, outside is closed. Right. And so just recognizing how important access is, I think people, I think people began to recognize it um, during the pandemic. But yeah, it's, it's all connected. And um, again, at, at the core of it all is like their, their manifest manifestations of racism. And, you know, it shouldn't have taken like a pandemic to see to recognize structural racism, you know, that was the buzzword, um, all 2020, right? It should have taken that to, to, for people to recognize it because researchers have been, you know, researchers, activists have been doing that work and calling it, calling the spade a spade for decades, right? Um, I feel like I'm going on a tangent now, but, but like it's, it's all connected and um, the solution, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's it, at the very least, it's I'm happy to see that people are calling what calling what it is and not some other name that has nothing that doesn't point to structural racism. Um, so Dr. Satcher, if you had to leave the listeners with, with one thing after you know going through the entirety of the episode, what would it be? Oh, man, ooh, <laughs> one thing, um, I don't know if I should be philosophical or, <laughs> or. I'll give you two. That way you can be philosophical and something else. Okay, so people, uh, scholars who are listening, I think most of y'all, if you're listening to this, then you probably know this because it's just, you know, if you listen to Equity Matters podcast, I'm sure that it matters to you. Um, but for scholars, I say, don't forget, especially new scholars like me, don't forget why you wanted to go to graduate school and why you wanted to address whatever, you know, social problem or, you know, area of inequality that you wanted to address. Don't forget it when you, you know, get tenure or get the promotion at your, you know, nonprofit job, or, you know, you know, when, when you elevate, don't forget the people and the populations that mean so much to you that you're, you're that you're a part of, um, or that mean so much to you that you, that you're doing the work for, and always make time to put your, like, research, put your money where your mouth is, really, to do the work, and not just sit behind a desk, and crunch the numbers or do the presentations or do the talks or whatever. I think, don't forget, it's gonna be, you know, it's hard 
but don't forget don't don't get so caught up in the rat race that is tenure or promotion or whatever and forget to like do that work also on the ground with communities with the populations that you care so much about so i guess i don't know if that was my philosophical or my practical but the, i think i think that that's that's a good way to good place to end i guess Joy of being a parent and a podcaster, so that's definitely my child screaming in the background. Um, well, I have kids too, but they're big. They're they're you know, the only time they scream is when they're playing video games and they're yelling at the other person. Fair enough, <laughs> Doctor Satcher. How do people keep up with you? Um, I know I was able to find your website relatively easily, but if people want to reach out, connect, what's the best route? Oh, absolutely. So um, I have a website simple lacesatcher.com um l-a-c-e-e-s-a-t-c-h-e-r.com um i have an instagram um lacy satcher so just my first name and last name i have a private instagram that i kind of you know it's kind of vip because you can you can you can you can request me you may not get in you can request me and that's lacy ann l-a-c-e-e-a-n-n-e and then i have an uh a twitter um, which again is uh, Lacey Satcher. So it's all my name. All of the ways you connect me, just type in Lacey Satcher in Google. It should pull up the website and the Twitter and the Instagram. The name is the brand. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dr. Well, Dr. Satcher, I am grateful for the time. I'm, I'm glad that you're doing this work. I think bringing not just the, the passion behind it, but that crucial Black feminist lens that you use your positionality in a way to understand and underscore the issue. And I think in many cases, folks get really close to the problem, but not mm. close enough to do something about it. And mm. I'm excited to see where things go for you as you, you move to Boston and just the depth of the work that you have forthcoming. So excited to see what comes out for you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm excited too. Of course, I want to invite people to follow us on social media. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. And another thing, I finally have a website. And so I want to just shout out the soon-to-be Hayden Dawes. I realize that he's preparing for defense at this time. One peace and blessings as you prepare for that. And also thank you for, for staying on me about getting the website done. I'm going to make sure that that link is in the bio as well. So that people who are interested in learning more about myself, the things that I offer, um, it's available. So please click the links, learn more about me, reach out, let's chat. And there's just a lot going on right now. The Brothers and Social Work Collective is picking up. We're working on a few trainings that we want to offer as well. I've got the last training with CGI that I, I need to finish up. I probably start doing that after I finish recording this. Really excited because the, the unmasking white supremacy and racism and mental health is, is really deep. The first uh, part is finished excited to get the feedback on that the second part is going to be even better as we talk about anti-racist practice so just know your man's is over here cooking it we're we're busy 
And also, I am still preparing to move, which I am I am dreading. So I'm looking in my closet and see about three shirts, two suit jackets, and a pair of pants because we're we're living on a minimalist wardrobe until further notice. So by the time you listen to this episode, I'll probably be packing my bags and getting ready to go to the next location. Wish us well with that. And in in the meantime, folks, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and of course, you know, equity matters. <laughs>